So we've been going through the book of Luke. It's been taking a while now. Um, and I've missed a few, few Sundays. Uh, but we're finally ch- starting chapter 7. And we had just gotten done where Jesus kind of gave us like a mini uh, Sermon on the Mount. Um, where in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, he gives us the most like insightful teachings that anyone has ever taught. And obviously, it's because he's God. Um, but just really encouraging things. We, we get the Beatitudes. We get a lot of instruction. We get a lot of um, theology in the mix of all that. And what we saw in chapter 6 is not the same thing we, saw, we would see in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But we do get what we call the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus gives us a lot of, of things that we really need to chew on and understand. And that's what we've been going through the past few weeks um, in chapter 6. And so when we jump into chapter 7, uh, Luke is going to start off this chapter with a segue and a, pref- and, and, a, and, a, and a flashback of, look, this is what we have just gone through. Um, he says in verse 1 of chapter 7, He says, now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people. So again, a reference back to, okay, this is what we just talked about. Now as he's done teaching these things, this is what we're we're moving into. It says that he entered Capernaum. Okay, now Capernaum was a city. It was on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was not where Jesus was born and, and grew up. Where was that? Come on, Christmas people. We learned this, yeah. And where did he grow up? Nazareth, right? Nazareth. So Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And remember, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago, I, I believe when we were in chapter 4, uh, when he was actually in Nazareth. Uh, but Jesus comes to Capernaum, and he makes Capernaum his, his place of residence. Now, how many of you actually were born and raised? In, when I say raised, you're, I guess you're still being raised. How many of you were born in Johnson County, North Carolina? Were you? Two, three, four, four kids, five. Five kids out of, I don't know how many are, 40, 50 kids. Isn't that crazy? How many of you were born in North Carolina? Okay, still, that, that may be half, right? So the rest of us were born outside of, of North Carolina. And so Jesus being raised in Nazareth is now going to make his home in Capernaum, where he's going to really, it's going to be his place of residence in his, uh, his home base for the three and a half years of his earthly ministry. Okay, this is where he's going to go. It's going to be his place of residence. We see this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, where it says he came and he dwelt in Capernaum. So now he comes back to Capernaum. And we're going to see this big contrast that Luke's going to give us between Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, and Capernaum, where Jesus is now residing. There's going to be a big contrast just where we're going to see uh, the difference in the people's faith. Okay, in, in Nazareth, when Jesus went back to Nazareth in chapter 4, the people said this, if you guys remember this, in verse 23, they said, whatever we have heard in Capernaum, do also here in your country, right? Like in your hometown, okay? Whatever, whatever we heard you doing there, we want to see you do it here. I don't know if you guys remember that chapter where they were like, we want to see you do these miracles. And Jesus is like, you're not ready for that, right? So he gives them the gospel, and they didn't like it, so they sought to kill him, right? Remember this? And then Jesus, that's when Jesus then performed his miracle because they tried to kill him, but they couldn't grab him. And he just went out and did his own thing. But his response to that in verse 24 was, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. 
So their, their faith was, was lacking. It was minimal. It was, when I say minimal, I'm actually just saying that there was no faith, that there, it was unbelief, right? So we see that with Nazareth, but then when we get to Capernaum here, what we're going to look at in this story in verses 1 through 10 is that it's the complete contrast of that unbelief in Nazareth. We're going to see a complete faith in Capernaum, right? The hometown, right? The hometown kid, he comes back, and everyone's hearing all these wonderful things. He's proclaimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, that he has the authority of God, that he can do miracles and wonders, and they want to see it, yet they lack faith. They had no faith. They could not believe. They did not believe. And yet in Capernaum, and these were his own people. These were, these were Jews, right? They, they have been raised as God's people for thousands of years, and yet here's God in front of them, and they, they didn't believe it. They did not believe. Then we get to Capernaum. We're going to get into the story with the centurion, and he is a Gentile. He is not a Jew, and yet, again, the contrast is going to be he has a complete faith in Jesus, and as we see this, Jesus is going to perform a miracle and heal, heal this servant, but more so than just seeing the healing happening, the moral and the point of this story that we're going to see is the faith that this man had, the faith that led to the healing of the servant. So we get into verse 2 as he enters Capernaum, and it says there's a certain centurion servant, centurion's servant who was dear to him and was sick and ready to die. Now, a centurion was a commander over a company of soldiers, which could be anywhere from a hundred to a thousand soldiers. Okay, so this, this guy wasn't just like in the lowest ranks of the army, of the Roman army. Okay, he was in the Roman army as a Gentile, and he had authority. He had power. He had responsibility. Like, he was, he was somebody in this time, and so what I want to look at really quick, just to understand the centurion and his role within the Roman army, I'm going to play a little video for you really quick. It's about three minutes long to help you understand who he was over and also who he was under. So you can go ahead and play it. Make Soldier. Sure yeah. A legionary is a Roman citizen. An auxiliary is not. Each must supply his own equipment and swear an oath of loyalty to the emperor. Legionaries join an infantry unit as part of a group of eight men, a contubernium, who all share sleeping quarters. New soldiers are stuck with fatigues, dirty jobs, until they secure a specialist post. Ten contubernia form a century, with its own standard bearer, commander of the watch, second in command, and a centurion to lead them all. Six centuries together make up a cohort. And ten cohorts, plus a small cavalry unit, the Equites Legionis, make up the biggest Roman army unit of them all, the Legion. The Legion's symbol is the Roman Eagle, borne aloft by the Aquilifa. Cohorts in a Legion are numbered one to ten. Cohort one is extra large, with five double centuries. Its centurions are the senior-ranking Primi Ordines, and the most senior of all is Primus Pilus, or first file. He can be promoted to be Prefectus Castrorum, Camp Prefect, in charge of the daily running of the Legion. Outranking this Camp Prefect are seven men, six staff officers, the Tribuni, and the commander of the entire Legion, the Legatus. Back in Rome, he's a member of the Senate, the Empire's 600-strong ruling elite. 
but in the field, he commands his legion of some 6,000 troops, each a Roman citizen. But while these citizen legionaries are the backbone of the Roman army, the non-Roman citizens, the auxiliaries, are the specialists. In auxiliary cohorts, men recruited across the empire use their talents and abilities in the service of Rome. One area of expertise was horsemanship. There are cavalry-only regiments, the Alla, a few double-strength cavalry regiments, including one in Britain, the Alla Petriana, also part-mounted cohorts, and some auxiliary cohorts are just regular infantry, organized like the legionary cohorts. But the similarities stop here, at the cohort. Auxiliaries are part of no bigger unit. There's no legion and no legate to command them. Instead, each cohort has its own high-ranking commander, who leads these more compact, maneuverable units. And when an auxiliary soldier has served the Roman army for 25 years, a great reward awaits. He gets a plot of land, a pension, and all of the rights of a Roman citizen, for him, his children, and the generations to come. Roman army, you see where the centurion plays a, a role in that. Um, the centurions, obviously, they were over you know, a good amount of soldiers, but they also they had commanders over them, and, and they all, you know, their, their allegiance was to the emperor um, and to the king. Um, but the centurions in this time, they had to be literate. They had to be at least 30 years of age, and they had to have already served a few years in the military, and they were, they were considered the best of men in the army, um, and they were the ones that held this position of centurion. And it's good to understand um, kind of his role and who he is and his background for us to really get the grasp of the story that we're going to see here. So again, this is a Gentile man who is not a Jew, who is a part of the Roman army. And remember, at this time, it was the Romans who were oppressing the Jews. And it was the Jews who knew that they were the children of God and who, who knew that the, that the Messiah would come, the Savior, right? The Savior would come. They thought the Savior would come and free them from their oppression from the Romans. Right? So, so understand that, that conflict there and their expectation. So when Jesus came and he didn't free them from the Romans, they're like, well, that's not what we want, and there's no way that you're the son of God, right? Jesus didn't come to free us from earthly oppression, right? Although I, th I think consequently that can happen. But more importantly, he came to uh, heal those who were sick, and he was talking about not the physical, but the spiritual. He came to lay down his life, to live a perfect life, to lay down his life, and free us from the oppression, the bondage of sin, which is more of an oppression than anything that we can ever face on earth. And that, again, that's not to diminish any type of oppression that happens on earth. Those are still bad things and things that we should clearly want to be freed from. But again, we have to understand the importance of a spiritual oppression, something that is eternal and has eternal value and weight to it, is obviously way more vital than something that is earthly. And so, You've got the Romans and their government and their army, the centurion. The Jews, obviously, they didn't like the Romans, um, and especially one that was in the army, and so especially a centurion. And this centurion had a servant, okay? So we see here uh, this centurion's servant in verse 2 uh, was sick and ready to die. 
But one of the important things that we see in that verse too is more than that that this servant was you know sick and ready to die was that this servant was dear to him. And this wasn't something that was common in that time where the servant or a slave was, you know, um, dear to the master, right? They were often looked upon as, as just objects or replaceable, not as human beings. And so there wasn't really any type of affection or love towards uh, a servant or a slave. But we see that this centurion, uh, he, pe- he appears, as we see in this story and through the scripture, as a devout, kind, and humble man, we're going to see his humility at the end of this story. Um, but at the same time, he was also a centurion, uh, which meant, you know, again, he was a Roman soldier. Uh, he had a slave. Uh, he was an instrument in Israel's oppression. And usually the, the attitude towards slaves in that time was that a, a master had the right to kill a slave. Again, it was it was just a fact of like they, they were treated as objects, again, replaceable, that they had no rights. So it was expected that if your servant were to get sick, that you would more than likely just let them die. There was no point in, in trying to help. And this servant, and another word that we can see for it in the Greek is doulos, uh, was not a free man. Okay? Uh, his service was not voluntary. Um, he was fortunate to have a master as a centurion who actually cared for the well-being of the servant, right? That they actually cared that he was dear to him. And we're going to see that he's going to go out of his way to see and make sure that his servant either gets healed or gets better. So in verse 3, we see that when he heard, the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servants. So the centurion doesn't go himself, and he sends some elders to talk to Jesus. And the elders here are going to act as advocates, okay, for the centurion. And they're going to plead with Jesus, right? They are going to appeal and urge to him and make a strong case for this sick servant and for their cent- the centurion to come and heal the servant. So it says in verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that one saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Right? So here we see that they, see, they say that this man, this centurion, is deserving. The Jewish leaders did this for the centurion because they thought he was worthy, and they thought he was a worthy man. Right? In contrast, we can come to Jesus directly without any representative, without any elder, without any Jewish leaders, and in, even when we are considered unworthy, because in Romans 4, 5, it says that he justifies the ungodly. That we can come before Jesus without anybody else. Because he justifies us. And he sees us as worthy. And he makes us worthy. But here we see these advocates who go on behalf of the, the centurion. And they, they actually say a good word about him. They say, they say this, look, he, for he loves our nation, in verse 5, 1, and he has built us a synagogue. So we're going to see really a display of faith this morning. Okay, We're going to see a display of faith from the centurion, but what we're going to see with this faith, it's going to be coupled with other things. And the first thing that we see is he has faith that is coupled with love. right? So he has a love for these people where generally you wouldn't see it. You wouldn't see a Roman loving the Jews, especially one with this type of authority, right? And vice versa, because of the way that he's loved them and treated them, 
right? He said, they say he loves our nation, he loves the Jews, that they reciprocate that love and they have a love and a respect for him that they say that he is deserving and worthy of you healing his servant. So we see the love that is displayed in, in the love that Jesus calls for us to have as followers of him, right? So we got his faith and his love that are coupled together. This man loved the Jews. But then we're going to see here in verse 5 that not only does he have faith and love that's coupled together, he has faith in deeds and good works that are coupled together, right? And we understand as we read through James that we as believers are supposed to not only have faith but also works, right? What's the point of saying that you believe it if you actually don't walk it, right? You can talk the talk, but eventually you're going to have to walk the walk, And so, Jesus calls and demands for us to not only have faith, but good works that accompany it. And we see the good works that this man has. Not only does he have love for the nation, but it says that in some way or another that he built them a synagogue. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if he, you know, got his tool belt and started helping build, if he helped financially, if he helped oversee it. In one way or another, he helped build them a synagogue, a place for them to worship. And so they appreciated this. He did good works, and it all stemmed from the love that he had for them. So in verse 6, it says, Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. So these elders, they come And they plead with Jesus to come and heal the sick servant, the one who's ill and ready to die. And we see in starting in verse 6 that Jesus was willing to go with them. He starts to go with them. But the closer that he gets, when he gets near his house, it says when he was already not far from the house, the centurion then sent his friends, right? So he, he first he sent the elders, and now he sends his friends. And he gives them a new message. And this message is, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Like, I just don't worry about it, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. And so we see the perspective that this man had, right? This Gentile, this Roman centurion, towards this this Jewish man who proclaims to be the Son of God, he considers himself unworthy for him to enter into his house, right? It was in the same sense of John the Baptist, and he considered himself unworthy to even loosen the straps of Jesus' sandals, right? To, to have that perspective of, I am, I am me, and this is God. And I think sometimes that's where we, where we lose things, is that sometimes we, we consider ourselves equals to God, that we should know as much as God, that we should be uh, treated and deserved a certain type of way, right? We, dude, we live in the most entitled place in all of the world right? We are the most entitled people. Don't, don't you agree with me? I mean, everything, everything that we are as a nation in our culture and our society has almost raised us up into feeling this entitlement, okay? Like, for instance, the customer's always right, right? You guys know that? Wh- whatever shop and store you go to, and if you've ever worked in, in retail or whatever, you know that the, cust- the, the mentality is the customer is always right, even when they're wrong, right? And that breeds entitlement in us, right? Or order a pizza, and if you don't get it in 30 minutes, 
what happens? It's free, right? So you've got all these different things that have just created this, this sense of entitlement. And then, you, and then when you guys start to drive, right, then it gets even worse, right? It gets even worse, and you see these things in full effect. But um, so we're just bred into this type of entitlement, which then builds pride inside of us, right, that I am deserving of this sort of thing, that I, I need this sort of thing that, uh, you know, I should have it. And we see that pride is really at the center of every sin that there is. And we see pride being the destruction and the downfall of man. And the wonderful thing uh, that combats pride is, is humility. And we see this with ma- this man. But again, I think it all, it all stems from this perspective that we have. Do we have the perspective of, I'm, I'm the customer and I'm always right? Or... I'm a man who was created by a living God who is almighty and powerful and has control over every single thing and has authority over every single thing. He's the one that created me, right? And if you understand who he is and who you are in comparison, you will have this, this humble mindset that the same, that the same as the centurion has, right? That I'm not worthy, Right? And even more so, you will experience this when you receive the grace of God. Right? You become humbled when you mess up and you fail and somebody shows you grace and love when you know you don't deserve it. And even more so from a God who is perfect and he gives us love and grace and we know we don't deserve it. And that humbles you and you experience it. And I love it. Because then I consider myself not worthy, just the same way that, that Paul considers himself not worthy, that, that he is just, that he is the least uh, of the least, right? That he is the chief of sinners. And that humility, guys, can take you further than, than any type of pride can ever take you. And God can use you and mold you and do wonderful, wonderful things. And so he couples his faith with love, and then he couples his faith with good works, and then he couples his faith with humility and saying, look, I'm not worthy for you to even enter my house. And again, I think this was more than just my house is dirty, right? And, and I don't want you to enter. But it's I'm dirty, and I don't believe that you should be able to enter my house. Now, Jesus would have willingly walked into the house, right? But from this man's perspective, he was not worthy of it. And then also, he thought himself not worthy in verse 7 that he should come to Jesus, right? That he should come to Jesus personally. And this word worthy means to, to think fit, right, or deserving, sufficient, enough, that he didn't think he was worthy. And I know sometimes we also can feel that way. Like we, sometimes we mess up, we have bad thoughts, we do bad deeds, we disobey. We, you, look, we all fail, and then there's times where we think, I am just not worthy to even go to church. I'm not worthy to talk to God. I'm not worthy of anything. And yes, that's a good place to be, but it's all, we also have to understand that we are able to approach God, that we can humbly approach him in his, his throne of grace, and you need it. You need it. So he says, I'm not worthy to come to you, right? I'm not worthy of coming to Jesus. But the elders, we see the contrast here, is that they thought he was worthy, right, when he said he wasn't. 
They praise him for building a house of worship, yet he felt unworthy that Jesus would even come to his house. And they said he was deserving, yet he himself felt undeserving. I want to read a quote to you from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Your faith will not murder your humility. Your humility will not stab at your faith, but the two will go hand in hand to heaven like a brave brother and a fair sister. The one bold as a lion, the other meek as a dove. The one rejoicing in Jesus, the other blushing at self. Yes, I think they go hand in hand to understand our unworthiness before Jesus, but also to approach Jesus and to be with Jesus. And so he says in verse 7, the end of it, in the second sentence, he says, but say the word. He says, I'm not worthy to come into your presence, but just say the word. I don't even have to be in your presence. I don't even need you to come to my house. He says, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, there's, there's a type of faith that would just believe that Jesus could come to the house and lay his hands, do whatever, be in the presence and heal the person. That takes tremendous faith. Don't you agree that Jesus would be able to do that? But it takes even more faith to believe that Jesus doesn't have to be present, that Jesus doesn't have to touch the person, that Jesus has the true authority to be able to command things to be done and see them completed outside his immediate presence. That he can just say it by his word, he says, and they, he will be healed. And so we see this tremendous amount of faith that the centurion has in regards to Jesus and his word. Right? He believed and he knew that Jesus could heal with his word just as easily with a touch. And we get into verse 8 where we're going to see faith and authority go hand in hand. He says, for I, all, for I also am a man placed under authority. And he's going to give a reason why he believes that the word, that his word will, will come about. That his word will bring about healing. Because he understands the authority that Jesus has. And we see this throughout scripture and throughout the gospels a lot. Jesus' authority. We saw this previously a couple chapters ago, and how important it is to understand the authority that Jesus has. And so he says, I, uh, I am also a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. So as we saw that video, we see that this was a man who had a lot of soldiers underneath him. And he says this, he says, I say to one, go, and what does he do? He goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Man, I, I wish that's how it worked with my children, right? Every night, go get ready for bed. Go get ready for bed. Have you brushed your teeth? Have you gone to the bathroom? Have you got your pajamas on, right? A hundred times I have to ask these things, and I wish I could just say it once and it would be done. And the same thing goes for you and your household, right? You guys, the very first authority that you are under is what? Who? Your parents, Right? God designed it that way, that you would be under the authority of your parents. And we've talked about this before, and how it's super important and vital for you to, to come under that authority, that rank, right? You are not lesser as a human being, but in this role that you've been given as a child, as a kid to your parents, you are now under the authority of your parents, which means that you then are submissive. Again, it has nothing to do with, with equality or anything like that. It has to do with the role. And the same thing in the army, right? In this Roman army. Now, if there wasn't submission, there would not be this structured and good organized army. In the same sense at home. If you are not submissive to the authority of your parents, then the structure of your home is not going to be good. 
right? And you will often find yourself in more trouble than not. And then when time comes, when you, when you grow up and you get a job, you will then have another type of authority. And then you have another type. And you, you are constantly under some type of authority. But if you can't learn it now under your parents when it's the easiest, right, what makes you think that you're going to follow the authority of your local government? Uh, you're going to follow the authority of your teachers, your employer, Right? And then what makes you think that you would then be good at having authority over another person if you can't submit to others? Because no matter who you are, you're always in submission to somebody above you. Right? And then if you happen to be that one person that isn't, you are always under submission to the law of the land, but also, more importantly, to God himself. Right? If I can't submit to my parents, what makes me think that I'm submitting to God's authority? And that's more important. Right? So we see this, this authority that he knows that he has. And he's not speaking out of arrogance or pride that, yeah, man, I know what that's like. I got this authority too. I tell him to go over there and he goes over there. If I, if I tell him to do five push-ups, he do five push-ups, right? These men have been trained and they understand to not, to, to not take this authority for granted or to take it out of context or to use it to their advantage, right? They don't, in the same way that God has structured marriage, between a man and a woman, and again, we understand that men and women are equal, right? Because bo- we're both sinners. We're both equal, but yet God has placed the authority of the man over the woman, but yet that man is under authority to God, to Jesus. And the man doesn't mistreat his wife because he has authority, right? It's the way of the structure and the roles that we have, right? But again, we work and we do things together, we, we, we figure out things together. We, we talk about things together. It's not that the man rules over the woman, okay? So, again, it's all about having order. And order, it, listen, if we didn't have order, what would happen? It'd be utter chaos, right? That, that things would never work together. They would never go well together. But order is good. And for some reason, we as people, well, not for some reason, it's because we're in the flesh, we don't like order. We don't like authority. And I see it happening in here sometimes, right? We, we buck against the authority. I don't want to be told what to do. I, I'm my own person. Who are you to tell me what to do, right? But again, that's where the pride is coming in from our hearts that we can't even submit to a simple authority and to a simple command. And that will lead from one thing to another, which is never, ever going to end up a good thing. So submission is a good thing. I know it's a dirty term and a, and a dirty word in the world that nobody likes the word submission, but it's good and it's healthy and it's good for the structure of the things that God has ordained. God has ordained a marriage between a man and a woman, just a man and a woman, and just one man and just one woman, and he's ordained it so that it would last a lifetime, right? God, God did not plan or intend for divorce to happen, right? He did not intend for a man and a man to be together or for two, two women and a man or vice versa, right? All these things that we have tainted the order and the structure that God has ordained, right? He even gave man the authority over, over animals, right? He gave man the authority over, over the earth. God has ordained these things and they were good for the structure of our world, but we as people think that we are God and that we can decide the ethics and the morality and the structure and the organization of things that God has already established. 
And once we go outside of the establishment and the roles that God has already ordained, we get utter chaos. And we get, we get evil, we get wickedness, we get hurt, we get pain. You know, all these different things that are not good and not of God. And so again, having this authority, he understands. And so he says, look, because I understand, when I tell someone to do something, by my word, they will do it. In the same sense, he's relating it to Jesus and the order that he can give. And he can know just by the word and the order of Jesus that this servant would be healed of whatever illness that he has. Again, he recognized Jesus as having the authority to command healing. And not only that, not only did he recognize it, but he believed it. He had faith. He had faith. And so when Jesus heard these things in verse 9, it says he marveled at him. Right? Like, like his, his jaw dropped. I don't know if it did. But he marveled. Right? Usually it's the other way around. Jesus is doing something, and the people marveled. We see this all the time. We saw that in, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 22 when Jesus uh, was, was doing these things, and they marveled at him. Whether he was healing somebody or speaking with authority, they marveled. But here, Jesus is marveling at this man, right? And so he turns around and he said to the crowd that followed him, he says this, he says, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Here is this Gentile Roman centurion, right, who has not been raised as the Jews have been raised under God as his people, who have been given, you know, the Old Testament and raised under Abraham and, and the words that, he, that God has given him, yet he has this faith that has not even been seen in the midst of the Jewish people, right? There's one thing for a Jew to have faith, but because they've, they've grown up in it, but for this Gentile to have this faith, God is amazed. And, he's, and now the question is, well, what is faith? And I want to give you a, a quick answer to that. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the sub, substance of things what? Hope for and the evidence of things what? Unseen. Right? And so with Christianity, with the word of God, faith has to be a factor in it. We are saved by grace through faith. Okay? Like, I know that the struggle is, well, I need factual, visual evidence. I need to be like Thomas. I need to put my finger in his wounds to believe. But Jesus says, blessed are those who, who, who believe and, and have not seen. Right? We, we are like just everyone else where we have to have the faith and the trust in a God who has displayed himself even though we haven't visually seen him. Right? We, we put, it is the evidence of things that are not seen. But the evidence is that we have a hope for these things. He says, I have not found such a great faith, not even in Israel. And I believe that God is looking for this type of faith in us. And, you know, maybe today he's looking for you to exercise this faith, right? Your faith in him, a simple trust in God, to trust him when, when you don't fully comprehend, right? Not every single question that you have is fully answered to your satisfaction, right? To trust him when you don't see, to trust him when things are difficult and things are hard. I mean, this is the time that we need to have this faith in him. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong, and on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him, God is looking for faith. He's looking for the faith 
that you would have in him. Again, he says, I tell you, I've not found such a great faith. No, not in Israel. Look, it's, it's natural to expect Jesus to find faith in Israel because Israel was the people of God. But ironically, he did not find this faith in Israel. The disciples who followed him, the lepers, they believed in his power. Those who witnessed his miracles, they glorified God. And the crowds, they pressed around him constantly. Even as he's turning around speaking to this crowd, they wanted to touch him and experience his healing power. But yet, it was less natural for this man outside of Israel, the Gentile, to have this great faith who had no interaction with God. I love that. The affirmation by Jesus of the centurion's faith rather than the healing miracle itself, that is the point of the story. Right? So yes, God has the authority to heal. And at his very word, he can do this. But we got to look at this man's faith and that Jesus was marveled by it. So it says in verse 10, we'll close here. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. So yes, don't, don't neglect what Jesus has done. Because Jesus is always the focus. Jesus was, has the, the power and the authority to, to do things, even at his word. And what we see is we don't even see him speak a word, right? And yet, when they get back, the centurion's servant was healed and was, was no longer sick. But what we really see, and what's really important, what we can take from this this morning is the faith that this man had that was coupled by love, good works, authority. What was the other one? And humility. Yeah, thank you. Right? He had faith in Jesus. And I believe that when we have this faith in Jesus, that we will be immensely blessed and rewarded. And it may not always, you know, manifest itself in some type of healing towards a sickness. It may not manifest itself in, in material things. It may not manifest itself in, in what you even expect but you will be immensely blessed by the faith that you display in God. And he's looking for that. And he can continue to grow and build your faith. And that's why you're constantly going to be going through things. And you're going to have hardships. It's this faith that's being strengthened and tested that you will constantly trust in him. That every step you take, you will need to trust in him. Right? Until the moment that you are standing in his presence and you no longer I believe I have to walk by faith, right? Because you will no longer be present in this world. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the example set forth by the centurion and the faith that he had in you. And Lord, I know it, it can seem as a simple thing as we read through it, but I also know that it's, it's something that's, that's great and profound, the fact that you marveled at it. Lord, help us to have this same faith. Lord, you you help the man who, who cried out to, to say, help my unbelief. And Lord, there's some of us in here who don't believe or are struggling with our faith. And Lord, it's something that we need to be able to walk with you. Lord, we know that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. And Lord, we know that you can give it to us. Lord, you can help us to believe and to trust in you. And so we just thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.